Welcome to The Lowdown, a podcast of news and ideas from the Columbia Alumni Association. When it comes to writing, Columbia boasts some pretty impressive alumni. Notable Columbia authors include Jack Kerouac, Paul Auster, Allen Ginsberg, Joseph Heller, Zora Neale Hurston, Jhumpa Lahiri, just to name a few. To celebrate this contribution to the written word and to introduce you to some Columbia writers, we're going to read you some excerpts from three alumni-authored books, with a little help from some Columbia staff members. First up is an excerpt from Get in Trouble, a collection of short stories by Kelly Link. Kelly is a Columbia College alum, and when the book was published last year, it was included on numerous Best Books of the Year lists, including those from NPR and The Washington Post. It was also a finalist for this year's Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. The excerpt you're going to hear is taken from the first story in that book called The Summer People. This story concerns a girl named Fran, who lives in Appalachia and whose father leaves town, putting her and her friend Ophelia in charge of the mysterious visitors who occupy the cottage behind her house. Reading this passage is Linda Yuri Greenberg from the Columbia Office of Alumni and Development. Let's have a listen. Fran dosed on NyQuil, feverish and alone in her great-grandfather's catalog house, hidden behind walls of roses, dreamed, as she did every night, of escape. She woke every few hours, wishing someone would bring her another glass of water. She sweated through her clothes, and then froze, and then boiled again. She was still on the couch when Ophelia came back, banging through the screen door. Good morning, Ophelia said. Maybe I should say good afternoon. It's noon, anyhow. I brought oranges to make fresh orange juice, and I didn't know if you like sausage or bacon, so I got you two different kinds of biscuit. Fran struggled to sit up. Fran, Ophelia said. She came and stood in front of the sofa, holding a cathead biscuit in each hand. You look terrible. She brushed her knuckles over Fran's forehead. You're burning up. I knew I oughtn't have left you here all by yourself. What should I do? Should I take you down to the emergency? No, doctor, Fran said. They'll want to know where my daddy is. Water? Ophelia scampered back to the kitchen. You need antibiotics or something, Fran? Here, Fran said. She lifted a bill off a stack of mail on the floor, pulled out the return envelope. She plucked out three strands of her hair. She put them in the envelope and licked it shut. Take this up to the road where it crosses the drain, she said all the way up. She coughed. Dry things rattled around down inside her lungs. When you get to the big house, go round to the back and knock on the door. Tell them I sent you. You won't see them, but they'll know you come from me. After you knock, you go in. Go upstairs directly, you mind, and put this envelope under the door. Third door down the hall. You'll know which. After that, you ought to wait out on the porch. Bring back whatever they give you. Ophelia gave her a look that said Fran was delirious. Just go, Fran said. If there ain't a house, or if there is a house, and it ain't the house I'm telling you about, then come back, and I'll go to the emergency with you. Or, if you find the house, and you're feared, and you can't do what I asked, come back, and I'll go with you. But if you do what I tell you, it will be like the minnow.
the minnow, Ophelia said. I don't understand. You will. Be bold, Fran said, and did her best to look cheerful. Like the girls in those ballads. Will you bring me another glass of water before you go? Ophelia went. Fran lay on the couch, thinking about what Ophelia would see. From time to time, she raised a curious sort of spyglass, something much more useful than any bobby, to her eye. Through it, she saw first the dirt track, which only seemed to dead end. Were you to look again, you found your road crossing over the shallow creek, the one climbing the mountain, the drain running away, and down. The meadow disappeared again into beds of laurel, then trees hung all over with climbing roses, so that you ascended in drifts of pink and white. A stone wall, tumbled and ruined, and then the big house. The house, dry stacked stone, stained with age like the tumble-down wall, two stories. A slate roof, a long slant porch, carved wooden shutters making all the eyes of the windows blind. Two apple trees, crabbed and old, one laden with fruit and the other bare and silver black. Ophelia found the mossy path between them that wound around to the back door with two words carved over the stone lintel, Be Bold. And this is what Fran saw Ophelia do. Having knocked on the door, Ophelia hesitated for only a moment, and then she opened it. She called out, Hello, Fran sent me, she's ill, hello. No one answered. So Ophelia took a breath and stepped over the threshold and into a dark, crowded hallway with a room on either side and a staircase in front of her. On the flagstone in front of her were carved the words, Be bold, be bold. Despite the invitation, Ophelia did not seem tempted to investigate either room, which Fran thought wise of her. The first test? A success. You might expect that through one door would be a living room, and you might expect that through the other door would be a kitchen, but you would be wrong. One was the queen's room. The other was what Fran thought of as the war room. Fusty stacks of magazines and catalogs and newspapers, encyclopedias and Gothic novels leaned against the walls of the hall, making such a narrow alley that even little tiny Ophelia turned sideways to make her way. Doll's legs and silverware sets and tennis trophies and mason jars and empty matchboxes and false teeth and still chancier things poked out of paper bags and plastic carriers. You might expect that through the doors on either side of the hall, there would be more crumbling piles and more odd jumbles. And you would be right. But there were other things, too. At the foot of the stairs was another piece of advice for guests like Ophelia, carved right into the first riser. Be bold, be bold, but not too bold. The owners of the house had been at another one of their frolics, Fran saw. Someone had woven tinsel and ivy and peacock feathers through the banisters. Someone had thumbtacked cut silhouettes and Polaroids and tintypes and magazine pictures on the wall alongside the stairs. Layers upon layers upon layers. Hundreds and hundreds of eyes watching each time Ophelia set her foot down carefully on the next stair. 
Perhaps Ophelia didn't trust the stairs not to be rotted through. But the stairs were safe. Someone had always taken very good care of this house. At the top of the stairs, the carpet underfoot was soft, almost spongy. Moss, Fran decided. They've redecorated again. That's going to be the devil to clean up. Here and there were white and red mushrooms in pretty rings upon the moss. More bobbies, too, waiting for someone to come along and play with them. A dinosaur needing only to be wound up. A plastic dime store cowboy sitting on its brass and copper shoulders. Up near the ceiling, two armored dirigibles tethered to a light fixture by scarlet ribbons. The cannons on these zeppelins were in working order. They'd chased Fran down the hall more than once. Back home, she'd had to tweeze the tiny lead pellets out of her shin. Today, though, all were on their best behavior. Ophelia passed one door, two doors, stopped at the third door. Above it, the final warning. Be bold, be bold, but not too bold, lest that thy heart's blood run cold. Ophelia put her hand on the doorknob, but didn't try it. Not a feared, but no fool neither, Fran thought. They'll be pleased. Or will they? Ophelia knelt down to slide Fran's envelope under the door. Something else happened, too. Something slipped out of Ophelia's pocket and landed on the carpet of moss. Back down the hall, Ophelia stopped in front of the first door. She seemed to hear someone or something. Music, perhaps? A voice calling her name? An invitation? Fran's poor, sore heart was filled with delight. They liked her. Well, of course they did. Who wouldn't like Ophelia? She made her way down the stairs, through the towers of clutter and junk, back onto the porch, where she sat on the porch swing, but didn't swing. She seemed to be keeping one eye on the house and the other on the little rock garden out back, which ran up against the mountain right quick. There was even a waterfall, and Fran hoped Ophelia appreciated it. There'd never been no such thing before. This one was all for her, all for Ophelia. Who'd opined that waterfalls are freaking beautiful? Up on the porch, Ophelia's head jerked around as if she were afraid someone might be sneaking up the back. But there were only carpenter bees bringing back their satchels of gold and a woodpecker drilling for grubs. There was a ground pig in the rumpled grass and the more Ophelia set and stared, the more she and Fran both saw. A pair of fox kits napping under the laurel, a doe and a fawn teasing runners of bark off young trunks. Even a brown bear, still tufty with last winter's fur, nosing along the high ridge above the house, while Ophelia sat and spelled on the porch of that dangerous house. Fran curled inward on her couch, waves of heat pouring out of her. Her whole body shook so violently her teeth rattled. Her spyglass fell to the floor. Maybe I am dying, Fran thought, and that is why Ophelia came here. As you can probably guess, that was not the full story. To read the rest, you'll need to get the book. We suggest heading over to the alumni bookshelf to snag a copy. Just go to alumni.columbia.edu bookshelf. 
Next up is In the Country by School of the Arts alumna Mia Alvar. Her collection of short stories depicts the lives of migrants, exiles, and immigrants, with a particular focus on the Filipino experience. The collection won the 2016 Penn Prize and was listed as a New York Times Editor's Choice. Bronwyn Knox from the CAA Marketing and Digital Initiatives team will be reading from the story Shadow Families. Enjoy. Every weekend in Bahrain in the 1980s, we took turns throwing a party. Luz Salonga hosted the first one that September of 86, and as always, we crowded into her kitchen to help. Marina Cruz soaked rice noodles at the sink. Dolce de Lumen made spring roll skins from scratch, painting batter onto the pan with a brush. Rosario Ledesma threaded sweet pork onto thin bamboo sticks. Over the clatter of dishes and the crackle of oil and the smells of vinegar, soy sauce, garlic, and fermented fish sauce settling on our clothes and skin, we laughed about children and gossiped about marriage. The noise is much a comfort to us as the food itself. Soon our teenagers would come downstairs whining of boredom. We lent them the car keys and sent them off to the shopping mall for an hour or two. They'd return with rented Betamax tapes and watch them upstairs. Episodes of Tops of the Pops, movies that the Ministry of Culture had cleaned up beforehand. There was no lobster dinner and flash dance, so far as our teens knew. No montage of oily limbs and leotards. Flor Bautista's son Joseph had hair on his chin already. Faye Zaldivar's daughter Mary was starting to fill out her blouses. We felt we could do worse than raise them on this small Islamic desert island, where some women veiled from head to toe, where cleavage and crotches were blurry bands on screen. Meanwhile, the babies, as we'd forever call our younger children, tore through the house with their dolls and robots, trucks and ponies. Our Catholic accidents, Rita Espiritu liked to say, she was the vulgar one. We'd given birth to them here on the island, in our late thirties and early forties. The teens, who acted more like junior aunts and uncles to them than older siblings, had helped us name them. Vanessa and Jason, Stephanie and Bruce, names they'd accuse us of mispronouncing almost as soon as they could speak. Our babies learned math from Irish nuns and played soccer with Bahraini children and changed their accents at will. Watch her bob that head from side to side like a bumbai, said Paz Evora of her daughter Ashley, whose best friends at school were Indians. At noon and sundown, when the muezzin's voice piped from the mosques, our babies ran to the windows. Allahu Akbar, they sang, as if they knew what it meant. As for our husbands, they retreated to a room where smoking was allowed and implicitly women and children were not. They turned on the television and spread the sports pages of the Manama Times between them. A horse track in Rifa held races every week, but gambling there was haram, of course. And so, our husbands made their secret bets indoors, on the same notepads where we wrote the grocery lists. Now and then, a great male chorus erupted from the den, hooting at winds, groaning at losses, ribbing one another for bad calls. They waxed authoritative about odds and breeds, trifectas and photo finishes. For speed and grace, said Domingo Cruz, no horse could match the white Arabian stallion, whose genetics had not changed in 4,000 years. Efron Espiritu talked up the sleeper potential of mixed breeds, which combined their parents' best traits and evolved out of their worst. This was our husband's surging primal release from the neckties and briefcases and paper-stacked desks that bound them through the week. The wagers, the beer, and the sizzling pork bits they ate with their fingers broke just about every law sacred to their Arab superiors. Men who'd seemed pummeled into defeat by the office, us wives, 
bills to pay and mouths to feed, relatives back home in the Philippines who took them for millionaires, men from whom we looked away in embarrassment on weeknights when they sat on the sofa picking trouser sock lint from between their toes. These same men became brash and young again every Thursday afternoon in their improvised gambling dens. In the evening, we came together to eat and sing into the minus one, a double cassette stereo system that let us dial down a song's vocal track and step in for Tony Bennett or Stevie Wonder. Holding printed lyric booklets, and this was way before karaoke gave us words on a screen, we crooned into the microphone, feelings, my way, three times a lady. Sometimes Vilma Bustamante's husband changed the lyrics to suit the occasion and Xeroxed them for all to follow. Manana is soon enough for me, became Manama is good enough for me, to welcome a family who just arrived on the island. I made it through the rain, became I made it through Bahrain, for a family on its way elsewhere. Outside the walls of Lou Salonga's house, beyond the fence around her yard, past her street and the gate to our compound, lay the oil fields and refinery that employed most of our husbands. We lived and worked in Bahrain at the pleasure of a people who mystified us. Everything we knew about the Arabs one day could be voided by what we learned the next. Lusalanga, the most religious one of us, admired their devotion. I see them kneeling by the highway at all times of day, she said, while I can barely sell the kids on bedtime prayers. But the Arabs that Faye Zaldivar knew only worshipped sports cars and gold jewelry, mansions and shopping trips to London. To Dolce de Lumen, who worked in an emergency room, Arab meant incompetent and backward. The best of their doctors couldn't heal a paper cut, she said. But Rosario Ledesma didn't think a country could get this rich and have all of Asia at its feet without some special brand of intelligence. Every morning, Vilma Bustamante passed their marble palaces in Saar. Every afternoon, Pazivora drove by crumbling concrete villages in Ali. It didn't matter that our own community had its kings and hobos, geniuses and fools, heathens and believers. This didn't keep us from wanting a more perfect knowledge of our hosts, a clearer definition. We'd arrived on their island like the itinerant father in the fairy tale about a beauty and a beast. Our house was fully furnished by some unseen master. Would he reveal himself to be a prince or a monster? We decided early on to behave ourselves rather than find out. In their shops and on their streets, we wore hems no higher than the knee, sleeves no shorter than the elbow, necklines that would please a nun. We lived like villagers at the foot of a volcano, hoping never to offend the gods who governed our harvest and our wealth. At this point, you might have noticed a theme. Today's readings are all from short story collections. It's not that we have a particular bias for short stories. It's just that as self-contained narratives go, these seem to lend themselves better to short readings. Which brings me to our last excerpt of this episode. This one comes from Stephen Milhauser's Voices in the Night. Stephen is a Pulitzer Prize winning author and a Columbia College alum. Voices in the Night started out as a standalone piece for the New Yorker magazine and then grew into a collection of 16 stories about the secret lives, hopes, dreams, and desires of ordinary people. It also includes some fantastical retellings of some myths and legends. Ra Hearn from the Columbia Office of Alumni and Development will be reading an excerpt from that story that first appeared in The New Yorker. 
boy Samuel wakes in the dark. Something's not right. Most commentators agree that the incident takes place inside the temple, rather than in a tent outside the temple doors under the stars. Less certain is whether Samuel's bed is in the sanctuary itself, where the Ark of the Covenant stands before a seven-branched oil lamp that is kept burning through the night, or in an adjoining chamber. Let's say that he is lying in an inner chamber close to the sanctuary, perhaps adjacent to it. A curtain doorway leads to the chamber of Eli, the high priest of the temple of Shiloh. We like such details, but they do not matter. What matters is that Samuel wakes suddenly in the night. He is twelve years old, according to Flavius Josephus, or he may be a year or two younger. Something has startled him awake. He hears it again, clearly this time. Samuel! Eli is calling his name. What's wrong? Eli never calls his name in the middle of the night. Did Samuel forget to close the temple doors at sunset? Did he allow one of the seven flames of the lamp to go out? But he remembers it well, pushing shut the heavy doors of cedar, visiting the sanctuary and replenishing the seven gold branches with consecrated olive oil so that the flames will burn brightly all night long. Samuel! He flings aside his goat's hair blanket and hurries, almost runs through the dark. He pushes through the curtain and enters Eli's chamber. The old man is lying on his back. Because he is the high priest of the temple of Shiloh, his mattress on the wooden platform is stuffed with wool, not straw. Eli's head rests on a pillow of goat's hair and his long-figured hands lie crossed on his chest, beneath his white beard. His eyes are closed. You called me, Samuel says, or perhaps his words are, Here am I, for thou didst call me. Eli opens his eyes. He seems a little confused, like a man roused from sleep. I didn't call you, he answers or perhaps with a touch of gruffness, since he doesn't like being awakened in the night. I called not, lie down again. Samuel turns obediently away. He walks back to his chamber where he lies down but doesn't close his eyes. In his years of attending Eli, he's come to understand a great deal about the temple and its rules, and he tries to understand this night as well. Is it possible that Eli called his name without knowing it? The priest is old. Sometimes he makes noises with his lips in his sleep or mutters strange words but never once has he called Samuel in the night. Has Samuel had a dream in which a voice called out his name? Only recently he dreamed that he was walking alone through the parted waters of the Red Sea. Shimmering cliffs of water towered up on both sides, and as the watery walls began to plunge down on him, he woke with a cry. From outside the walls of the temple, he hears the high-pitched wail of a young sheep. Slowly Samuel closes his eyes. Chapter 2 it's a summer night in Stratford, Connecticut, 1950. The boy, seven years old, lies awake in his bed on the second floor under the two screen windows that look down on his backyard. Through the windows, he can hear the sound of summer, the of crickets from the vacant lot on the other side of the backyard hedge. For donkeys, it's hee-haw. For roosters, it's But for crickets, you have to make up your own sound. Sometimes a car passes on the street alongside the yard, throwing two rectangles of light across the dark ceiling. The boy thinks the rectangles are the shapes of the open windows under the partially raised blinds, but he isn't sure. He's listening, hard. That afternoon in his Sunday school class at the Jewish Community Center, Miss Krause read the story of the boy Samuel. In the middle of the night, a voice called out his name, Samuel! Samuel! He was an attendant of the high priest and lived in the temple of Shiloh without his parents. When he heard his name, Samuel thought the high priest was calling him. Three times in the night he heard his name. Three times he went to the bedside of Eli. But it was the voice of the Lord calling him. The boy in Stratford is listening for his name in the night. The story of Samuel has made him nervous, tense as a cat. The slightest sound stiffens his whole body, 
He never thinks about the old man with the beard on the front of his child's illustrated Old Testament, but now he's wondering, what would his voice be like? His father says God is a story that people made up to explain things that they don't understand. When his father speaks about God to company at dinner, his eyes grow angry and gleeful behind his glasses, but the voice in the night is scary as witches. The voice in the night knows you're there even though you're hidden in the dark. If the voice calls your name, you have to answer. The boy imagines the voice calling his name. It comes from the ceiling, comes from the walls. It's like a terrible touch all over his body. He doesn't want to hear the voice, but if he hears it, he'll have to answer. You can't get out of it. He pulls the covers up to his chin and thinks of the walls of water crashing down on the Egyptians, on their chariots and horses. Through the windows, screens the crickets seem to be growing louder. Chapter 3 The author is 68 years old, in good health, most of his teeth, half his hair not dead yet, though lately he hasn't been sleeping well. He's always been a light sleeper. The slightest sound jostles him awake, but this is different. He falls asleep with the book on his chest, then wakes up for no damn reason and strains his neck to look at the green glow of his digital clock, where it's always some soul-crushing time like 2.16 or 3.04 in the miserable morning. Hell time. Abyss time. The hour of no return. He wonders whether he should turn on his bedside lamp, try to read a little, relax, but he knows the act of switching on the light will wake him up even more. And besides, there's a problem of what to read when you wake up at 2 or 3 in the godforsaken morning. If you read something that interests him, he'll excite his mind and ruin his chance for sleep. But if you read something that bores him, he'll become impatient, restless, and incapable of sleep. Better to lie there and curse his fate, like a man with a broken leg lying in a ditch. He listens to the sounds of the dark shh of a passing car, of a neighbor's air conditioner, of the floorboard in the attic, a resident ghost. Things drift through your mind at doom time in the morning. And as he listens, he thinks of the boy in the house in Stratford the bed by the two windows, the voice in the night. He thinks of the boy a lot these days, sometimes with irritation, sometimes with a fierce love that feels like sorrow. The boy tense, whipped up, listening for a voice in the night. He feels like shouting at the boy, driving some sense into that head of his. Oil your baseball glove, jump on your bike, do chin-ups on the swing set, make yourself strong. But why yell at the boy? What'd he ever do to you? Better to imagine the voice calling right here, right now. Hello, old atheist. Have I got a news for you? Sorry, pal. Don't waste your time. You should have made your pitch when I was seven. Had the boy really expected to hear his name in the night? So long ago, Bobby Benson and the B-Bar B-Riders on the radio, his father at dinner attacking McCarthy. War in Korea, the push to Poussin. Those old stories got to you. Joseph in the pet, the parting of the Red Sea, David soothing the soul of Saul with his harp. In Catholic working-class Stratford, he was the only boy who didn't make the sign of the cross when they passed Holy Name Church on the way to school. Girls with smudges of ash on their foreheads. His God-scorning father driving him to Sunday school, but taking him home when the others went to Hebrew class. No bar mitzvah for him. His father mocking his own rabbi for making boys jabber words they didn't understand. Pure gibberish. A new word, gibberish. He liked it, gibberish. Still, Sunday school. Rock of Ages. The story of Samuel. Why is this night different from all the other nights? The boy lying there listening, wanting his name to be called. Had he wanted his name to be called? Through the window, the author hears the sound of a distant car, the cry of the crickets. Sixty years later, upstate New York, and still the cry of the crickets in the summer in Stratford. Time to sleep, old man.
three of the books you heard came out in 2015. Get in Trouble was published by Random House, and both In the Country and Voices in the Night were published by Knopf Doubleday. You can find those books and more alumni-authored works at alumni.columbia.edu slash bookshelf. This podcast was produced by the Columbia Alumni Association. Columbia University is a mecca of great ideas in one of the world's greatest cities, and with more than 320,000 Columbia alumni who are leaders in every field imaginable and spread across the world, the Columbia Alumni Association brings you the latest musings, updates, and insights from Columbia University. Learn more about the Columbia Alumni Association at alumni.columbia.edu. And to get even more news and ideas from Columbia, check out thelowdown.alumni.columbia.edu.